Amen. Well, I wanted to give you guys um, a little update. I don't, many of you have probably heard, and Robbie mentioned it a couple weeks ago, his dad had been uh, in and out of the hospital suffering from leukemia, and last Sunday, Christmas morning, he passed away. And so uh, just wanted to let you know, inform you about that if you were unaware. They're gone today. They've been back and forth uh, to Omaha, where his, Robbie's parents live. And just wanted to let you know, um, you can just be praying for them, praying for him, praying for his mom, who obviously just lost, lost a significant other and adjusting to a new normal like that. And I know a lot of you experience loss, and it doesn't always you know, get highlighted on stage, um, but I just wanted to inform you about what's going on in the life of our pastor. And what's really encouraging to me, at least, you know, there's been so much death and grief um, just kind of in our extended church and, and people that you guys are close with or family or friends. And, you know, in John 11, when Lazarus dies, what's so encouraging is that Jesus doesn't uh, try to put a spiritual band-aid on the pain. He doesn't try to uh, fix things right away or make things better. He actually, it says he was deeply troubled and angry when he saw how much death affected people that he loved. And so we serve a God um, who works all things for good, yes and amen, but we also serve a God who enters in to grief and understands that, that death is painful and death brings sorrow and that it's, that it's we don't have to try to spiritually fix it right away. We can enter in uh, either when we experience loss or a loved one or a pastor, whoever experiences loss, we serve a Savior uh, who enters in to that as well, and is troubled and even angry at uh, the consequences of death. So I just wanted to give you an update on that. Um, they'll be back next week, but we kind of flipped messages, so we're kind of working backwards. We're going to be in Matthew 6 for this week and next week, um, and so I'll preach this week, and then we'll kind of work backwards actually in the text uh, for the following week uh, where Robbie will be back. So we'll be two weeks back in the Sermon on the Mount, and then we're actually going to start a new series January 15th on Ecclesiastes. Yeah, did you know that was in the Bible? Uh, I've never been a part of a church that's, that's walked through the book of Ecclesiastes. I think it's a phenomenal book. I'm really excited for us as a church to really dive into that and in that form of, of literature and look at what God has to say uh, to our church through that book. So I just even encourage you uh, to start reading now, start studying the book. We'll be, we'll be in it for several weeks this spring, and our community groups will be studying it alongside uh, our Sunday services as well. And so, really looking forward to that. But for today, I want to ask, why are we so anxious? Why are we so worried? Why do we worry so much just as a people in general about things of this world? It's no surprise, and you don't have to look far at any sort of studies or articles to see that anxiety is, is on the rise, and especially uh, amongst our younger generations, but not just our younger generations. A lot of our older generations experience uh, chronic worry as well. And obviously, over the last few years, the uncertainty of life and our, our world uh, we've seen the fragility of it. I don't care what your feelings are about 2020, but we saw a wor our world change like never before, at least 
never before in our own lives. And things we took for granted were suddenly shaken. You know, if you're a business owner, it became difficult to find employees, keep employees, even stay open, let alone profitable. Businesses had a hard time surviving. Things we took for granted, just like travel or health or loved ones. You know, now I go into a restaurant and it's like, one, it's open and I'm excited. Two, it's actually like well-staffed. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing because there was a time where it was so hard for restaurants to stay open. And, and now when I go, I don't take it for granted anymore. But our culture and our churches are plagued by worry. And I don't think it does us any good to pretend like this doesn't exist. You know, kind of sweep it under the rug and just hope it goes away. Because it's people in our church, many of you even riddled with worry or anxiety about your future, about your finances, about your kids, about student loans that you're taking on, about your businesses. You know, and maybe for, for some of you that are a little further along in life, maybe you're a little more financially stable, well, then you look and you, you wonder, man, what is the world going to be like for my kids? How are my kids ever going to make it? My kids are, you know, one and almost four, and I'm thinking a house is going to be a million dollars by the time they're ready to buy a house if this inflation keeps up. How are they going to make it, let alone the student debt that we're accruing, you know, my generation and below? How, how possibly are my kids going to make it? And I just want to say, you know, the topic of anxiety is, is a really kind of charged topic in our time. There's lots of different opinions about it. I'm not uh, pretending to be a counselor or a licensed therapist. I just want to focus on what the scripture says and the spiritual aspect of worry. Okay, not the psychological or even the traumatic events in the past that, that may impact worry and anxiety. But these aren't my words. These aren't my words. These are Words straight from what we learned about a couple weeks ago, our wonderful counselor. Okay, so I just want to put that disclaimer out there, but I don't want, I, I want us to see, man, Jesus knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's talking about. But we are such an anxious people, and it seemingly, at least as far as I can tell, uh, getting worse probably more than getting better. And we would agree with Paul in 1 Timothy 6 when he says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. Okay, we would read that and we'd say, yeah, I agree with that. Obviously, that's true. I came into the world, didn't own a darn thing. And when I leave, I'm not bringing any of it with me. Possessionless in, possessionless out. So we, we realize that that's the true like starting point and ending point. But it's this middle ground yet that where we find ourselves so anxious, so worried, we find ourselves trapped in a constant state of worry about material things. Will I have enough? Will I have enough money? How is this going to work out? And I just want to ask, what does Scripture have to say about this? What does Jesus have to say about this? How can we overcome it? Can we overcome it? In Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, Jesus speaking, he says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. And he says, he starts with therefore, meaning he's preceding, uh, he's building on what has just preceded in the text. 
And we, since we switched weeks, Robbie and I, we haven't got to look in depth at that passage yet. We will next week. But basically, it's the passage where Jesus just got done telling them, don't store up treasures on earth that won't last. Store up treasures in heaven because you can't serve both God and money. You can't serve two masters. Now he says, because of that, or building on that foundation, with that in mind, don't worry about the material things of your life. It's a, it's a continued thought. The New Living Translation translates verse 25 like this. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. That is why, because of all that, that is why I'm telling you this. And it's just important to point out so that we don't get kind of sideways on this. Jesus doesn't say don't have a grocery budget. He doesn't say don't have a retirement account for your future. He says not to be overly worried about it. Not to never think about it, but not to be consumed by it. Overly concerned to the point of anxiety. And the second part of verse 25, he says, Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Because you serve God, because he is your master, you can't serve two masters, you know your heavenly father, and then the answer, of course, is yes. But for those who don't believe in a God, the answer is actually for them, no, or at least partially, no. I mean, if there's no God, no eternal life, no spiritual reality, then all we have is this life. We better make the most of it. So our greatest good is, is pleasure, is, is hedonism, material things, success, status. And that's not a criticism even or a slam. That's just a reality. You have to live for something. If I didn't believe in God, I would need to live for something else. It's just reality. But for those who do know God, we realize there's a spiritual reality that is far more important than material things. That this life is just the foreword to eternity. And then he says, consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? And so he uses this illustration from nature to prove his point. He says, look at them. Be a bird watcher. They are taken care of. They have what they need. Even though they don't have a loaded savings account, a big 401k or a stacked refrigerator, your heavenly Father feeds them. A month or two ago, we uh, got to experience the joys of dog sitting. And so we had a, a dog in our house for, I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks, uh, longer than we bargained for maybe. Um, but we did like a pretty good job taking care of it. I mean, it ran away a couple times, got out. But other than that, like we fed it regularly and we gave it water. And we even let it, you know, go outside to use the restroom. But our kids saw us constantly feeding and watering the dog. And now I like dogs. Okay, dogs are awesome, but I love my kids infinitely more. Dogs are wonderful, but they are not made in the image of God. And what kind of father would I be if I provided for the dog right in front of my kids' faces, but not for my own children? I said, hey, let's feed the dog. Oh, sorry, Emmett and Grace and you guys are on your own. What kind of father would I be? Jesus is saying, do you really think God is like that? 
He's going to provide for all the birds and animals and everything, but not for his own children. Aren't you worth more than they, than the birds? And when we say it like that, you know, do you think God's like that? Of course not. We'd say, of course not. But based on a lot of our actions, maybe our core beliefs, we might live like that is true, like God is actually like that, that we have kind of this orphan mentality spiritually. Nobody is going to help me, and I am on my own. And then he says this, Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? Can you add one moment? And we think, well, of course not. Of course not. But yet, we fall for it constantly. And not only can we not add time to our life, but we actually rob ourselves of that time by worrying. If anything, we shorten it. With this long-term chronic stress on our lives cannot be extending our life. And, and it robs us of the joy of what God is doing in our life now. And Jesus, here's the key, Jesus is not giving us an arbitrary command. This is an invitation into joy. Worry and what ifs rob us of a life, rob us of a life of peace and of joy in the here and now. The other day I was here and I was working on uh, this message and there, were, there was a family uh, sledding on this hill behind us. Sorry if, if that was you. Uh, I'm using it as an illustration. But I was just sitting there. You know, I had this message on my mind, this text on my mind. I was kind of pondering it, uh, meditating on it, praying through it. And, and so they, this family, like this dad and these bunch of kids, they're, they're sliding down this hill. And it was one of those moments where you're thinking, like, I'm watching, I'm just thinking, man, everything's right in the world. Like, this is how it's supposed to be. These kids are sliding with their dad, and then they fall, and, you know, they're jumping on him, they're wrestling, they're laughing, they're having so much innocent joy and fun. A father and his children enjoying each other, enjoying time together. And then I started thinking, what if that kid went up to his dad and said, Dad, do we have food for dinner? And his dad's like, yeah, we have dinner planned. Okay, good. What about tomorrow? Do we have enough food for tomorrow? Yes, buddy, we have food for tomorrow. Okay, good. Well, what about like next week? Are we going to have enough food still like for, to get us through next week? Uh, yes, we have enough food for next week. There's these things called grocery stores. Okay, cool. Wait, well, what about the mortgage? Do we have enough money to pay for that? Yes, buddy, we will pay for the mortgage. Okay, good. Whew. How's your retirement account doing? Like, are you doing okay? I know the market's down, but like, how are you doing? Right? The dad would just be thinking, dude, relax. Stop worrying. You're missing out on this opportunity for joy and fun and life together. Now, you're missing me. You're missing this opportunity for relationship and joy and memories with me. He's saying, I'll take care of you. Just enjoy this time with your father. And we laugh, but man, that's many of us. That is many of us. God, will I have enough? You'll provide for today. Okay, cool. But what about tomorrow? What about the next day? What about the next day? Will I have enough? And it robs us of the joy he is offering us now. And then in verse 28, 
He uses another illustration. He says, And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? And now he's speaking in a very different context and to a very different audience than to us today. First century Hebrews and Israel, man, they owned a little more than what was on their backs. You know, they might have one or two set of clothes and a, and a pair of sandals. And so for them, it really is, it's understandable that they would worry about clothing. You know, but it's very different than us. Meanwhile, we have multiple outfits for every season and every occasion, and we still worry about our stuff, but we have so much. Man, my closet is filled. I don't even know where the clothing comes from. My wife puts it in there. I don't know. I'm constantly trying to like get rid of it, like declutter, because I have so much clothing. I don't even try. I don't even like clothing. I could care less. Robbie's, you know, wardrobe, he likes clothing a little more. He's got a you know full-on uh, walk-in closet downstairs. Like he's more into that. But me, I don't care. I could care less. We have so much. And yet we still worry about our stuff. So some of our worry, worry probably isn't based on not having enough. And again, he goes to nature to illustrate how silly our worry is. Look at the beauty of the flowers. God created that beauty. Some of it that nobody will ever even see. You know, flowers that come up in the springtime in the middle of nowhere, the middle of the mountains, that there's no trails by, yet God still creates them. Aren't you worth more than the flowers? So despite our affluence, despite all of our savings accounts and our full wardrobes, we are still consumed with frantic worry about material possessions. And so I want to ask, and I want to kind of drill in, what are we really worried about? What are, what are we really fearful of? Because you might say, well, we don't trust God. And you'd be, that's true, that's correct, that's kind of, but that's kind of like the tip of the iceberg. So what's underneath that? If we don't trust God to provide for us, okay, why? Why don't we trust Him? What specifically don't we trust Him for? And there's probably several things, but a few ideas I came up with just reflecting on my own life and, and those of others. One, I think a lot of times we're worried because we want enough now to take care of us later for the rest of our lives. We're like, we want God in advance on that payroll. Can we get that inheritance now? To the point where like, we don't need to trust God for provision anymore. Because look, I'm taken care of. I've got a savings account with enough money in it for the rest of my life. We don't want to have to rely on God for that daily manna from the sky. We don't want to have to be dependent on him. We don't want to have to pray, God, give us today our daily bread. You know, if my three-year-old was like, hey, dad, I'm hungry. Can you make me something to eat? I'm like, yeah, sure. And then I give him the next 15 years worth of food before he turns 18, like all at once. That would be ridiculous. But yet that's what we want from God. And we think once I get this amount, then what? then I won't worry, or then I'll be generous, or then I'll start giving. But anybody else, man, the more you get, the tighter your grip actually gets. 
Like it was almost easier when you barely made anything. My first full-time ministry uh, job, I was working for Youth for Christ, and I made $1,200 a month, and it was amazing. Uh, but that's not very much money. And tithing, in my experience, was actually easier in one sense. Okay, because you have like less money to go around, but like 10% of $1,200, bucks, 100, $120, that doesn't hurt that bad. That doesn't hurt that bad. But as you start making more money, and some of you guys, you know, you're so successful, and if you're giving, that's got to be hard. I mean, you have plenty, but you're looking at that check, and you're like, oh my gosh, that's thousands of dollars. In some ways, it actually becomes more difficult when we accumulate more money and more stuff, because then we start worrying about it. But when I was making $1,200 a month, it was almost easier to tithe, to give. And that's how I knew Taylor uh, was the one because she obviously wasn't marrying me for my money. <laughs> but we, are, we get to the point where we're not focused on today's concerns. We get to the point where we're already stressing about trying to solve all of tomorrow's problems and next year's problems and the next decade's problems. Elizabeth Elliot says it this way. She says, today is mine. Tomorrow is none of my business. If I peer anxiously into the fog of the future, I will strain my spiritual eyes so that I will not see clearly what is required of me now. And look, Jesus isn't anti-planning for the future. You know, read the Proverbs. It is, there is a lot of wisdom in planning and managing your finances and all of these things, and those are good. But he is simply inviting us not to stress about all of these future problems. God will not only provide for us today, but he will provide for us then as well. So that's reason number one. A second reason, I think, actually is our pride. It's our pride. And what I mean is this. You know, in my life, I have, there's been times where I've, I've stressed about finances, especially, you know, you start having kids and you're like, oh my gosh, I got to try to keep, you know, all these, this whole family unit alive, not just myself anymore. Like we got to get all this food on the table and diapers and all this crazy stuff. And, but there's been times where I've stressed about that. Okay. And then, and then I started thinking like, okay, what is the worst, what am I really afraid of? What is like the worst case scenario? Taylor and I were talking about this maybe a couple years ago. And I just said, I don't want us to go homeless. I don't want us to go homeless. And when it came out of my mouth, I realized, you're not really afraid of that. You know you're not going to go homeless. Like, worst case scenario, I have friends or family who will at least reluctantly let us stay at their house for a seasonal life if we really came to that. Like, of course they would. I know they would. I'm not going to be homeless out on the street. And I realized what I was really afraid of is not being homeless, but being humiliated. I was afraid of getting to the point where I have to ask somebody for help. That's humiliating. Man, I'd, ra I'd rather be homeless than have to ask somebody for help. Say, hey, I screwed up. I, tried to, I was trying to figure this out and do this. These things went wrong, and now I'm in a bind. That would be so hard for me and for my pride. It dings my pride because I want to prove, man, I'm self-sufficient. I'm self-made. I don't need you. I don't need my family. I don't need the church. I don't need my friends. I don't need God because I am self-sufficient. Look at me. 
I don't need anybody's help. And look, Scripture is clear that we should work hard and, and, not, and do everything we can not to be burdensome financially towards others. Paul talks about that in his epistles. But I think a lot of us are just so afraid that if something ever happened, we would be humiliated because we need to ask for help. So to our pride. Thirdly, we don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to be uncomfortable. Most of us aren't afraid of living we're afraid of our standard of living. You know what I mean? We're not afraid that God's not going to take care of us. We're just afraid he's not going to take care of us in the way we want. We don't want to be uncomfortable. That's understandable. And we don't want to go backwards. Like we don't want to financially go backwards in our wealth or our comforts or our living arrangement. When Taylor and I first got married, June 2016, we moved into a basement one-bedroom apartment below a vintage shop. It was concrete floors, one, you know, no storage, no parking space, no garage, and it was awesome. It was awesome. We paid 500 bucks a month for that place, and we loved it. We, we squeezed so many, you know, 30-plus people in this little living room playing games together. It was amazing, and I have such good memories of that place. I genuinely enjoyed it because it was our first place together, and God provided a place for us. Like, are you kidding me? We get to live here together? At the time, we loved it. But now, if you put me back there, you made me go back there, I would hate it. I would hate it. Why? Because my expectations have changed. My expectations have changed. My expectations about God's provision for my life have changed. And they haven't gone down. No, they've gone up. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6 as well, right after he says, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. If we have food and clothing, we will be content. Is that true for you? Is that true? Not for me, man. Food, water, and shelter. He doesn't even mention that. That's not enough anymore. That's not enough for me. When we were moving here and we were having a hard time finding a place to live, I just remember praying, God, please, anything but an apartment. Like anything. I'm sorry if you live in an apartment, but I just, I had a house and like a yard and a garage, and I was like, God, I just can't go back to an apartment because my expectations have changed. Many of us aren't actually worried that God won't provide for our needs. Many of us are actually worried God won't provide beyond our needs. Verse 31, he says this, So don't worry, saying, What will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. And that, that word Gentiles could be translated pagans or even un, just unbelievers. Unbelievers eagerly seek all these things, or the New Living Translation translates it well. It says, these things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. These things dominate the thoughts. And it's just as true now as it was then. Again, it's not a slam. It's just, it's just reality where self-indulgence is the goal of our time. Freedom to do whatever the heck we want and nobody can stop me. We are obsessed with material things and experiences and not just for security for a lot of us anymore, but just for pleasure or, or entertainment or status or identity. We are obsessed and we're constantly marketed to. 
saying like, you don't have enough, you don't have enough, you need this, you need this. And all these companies that have an agenda for our lives, wanting us to buy these things, and we constantly think, man, we need that thing to be happy. If you are putting your hope or identity in stuff, you are living like a practical atheist. You are living like an unbeliever. I don't care what your Instagram bio says or your kind of public beliefs or your personal creed. You are living like an atheist. Because how you live reveals what you truly believe. Now, how do we practically live this out? How do we not worry and stress about our physical needs? How can we possibly not be consumed by our material possessions? Because three times in this passage, Jesus says, do not worry. And you're thinking, okay, great. There's the command, but how in the heck am I supposed to live that out? And it's easy to miss in this passage that Jesus offers remedies for our problem of worrying. One, we won't spend much time on this because we've kind of already touched on it, but he says, consider God's provision. Consider God's provision. He uses the illustrations about nature, you know, the birds and the flowers. Consider his provision. He, he tells them about the birds. He tells them about the flowers, hoping that they will see, oh, okay, our Heavenly Father takes care of them. Our Heavenly Father takes care of them. Jesus is trying to help them see that. And then he hits them with this. Aren't you worth more than birds and wildflowers? Aren't you worth more? Consider God's provision. And beyond animals and the plants and the natural world, consider God's provision in your own past. How has he come through for you before? You really think he won't do it again? Were you ever in a bind and you saw no way out? Yet, here you are. Sitting here. Every time I, I move, I play this thing over again in my head, like, I don't know how the heck this is going to work out. I don't know how this is going to work out, like transitioning houses and money and all this stuff. Like, I don't know. I hope it works out. And yet, here I am. For every unexpected hospital bill that comes, you're like, I didn't budget for that one. I bet you have amazing stories in your biography of God's provision for you. So one, consider God's provision. Two, believe that your heavenly Father knows your needs. In verse 32, the second part, he says, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He knows that you need them. This is so key. I don't think some of us believe this. Deep down, he knows what you need. Let me ask you this. What is your security in? If you are just being dead honest, what gives you a sense of security? Is your ultimate security in your savings account, your nest egg, your emergency fund, whatever you want to call it? Good things. But is that your sense of security? Is your ultimate security in your Retirement account, I mean, not to be the bearer of bad news, but how's that going? You know, S&P 500 down 19%. Is that your ultimate security? Is your ultimate security in your job or in your company or in your boss? Is it in your business? 
Does your deepest sense of security in your perceived control of your own life, does having a lot of money make you feel like, man, I'm in control? Nothing can happen. I'm in control. Or is it in your future degree, maybe, man, once I get through law school or once I get through med school, then I'll stop worrying, then I'll get a good job. Is that what your security and hope is in? Or is your truest, deepest sense of security in the reality that you have a heavenly Father who knows your needs? Knows your needs and sees you of infinite value. There's nothing wrong with having those things. I think you should have those things. There's nothing wrong with working towards those things or those degrees. They're good things, but they make horrible gods. They're good things, but make horrible gods. You have your security and your company, and you think, man, I'm irreplaceable. I hate to break it to you. If you leave your job, guess what? They'll find somebody else. They'll find somebody else. Our security can't be in those things. And a lot of us, man, we think we graduate from this reality. We think we graduate from seeing God as our provider. Like, oh, yeah, that's such a good Sunday school thing. That's for kids. But me, I'm an adult. I'm an adult, and now it's all up to me. Do you know how prideful that is? Do you know how prideful that is? Who do you think it is that ultimately provided that job for you? There are so many things out of your control. You didn't pick to be born in a certain time with a certain gifting or certain intelligence and a certain opportunity. Man, God provided those things. God did that. We think, I'm such a hard worker, man. I earn this. Yeah? Well, who gave you that desire, that personality, that drive, and that opportunity? All securities other than God are fragile and fleeting. We must realize and believe deep in our core that God is our ultimate security because He knows what we need and He cares. Thirdly, Direct your focus and ambition towards God and his kingdom. This is the answer that Jesus provides in verse 33. He says, but, so don't worry, don't do all these things, but instead seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Get your gaze up. Get your gaze up off of your stuff, off of all these, these worries that consume you and up onto something greater. A key to understanding this passage is this word for worry. It's uh, the word marimnau, and it's translated in the CSB, which I'm reading, or the NIV as worry. ESV translates it anxious, some concerned. But more literally, it means to be in pieces, to be drawn in a bunch of different directions, to be distracted or, or scattered. You know, imagine having a bunch of toddlers pulling on you in every different direction. That's what that word more literally means. And he's saying we are distracted, pulled in all these different directions, distracted from the most important thing. Our focus is so divided and misdirected. It's all over the place and on all the wrong things. It's actually the same word used in the story of Mary and Martha, if you remember that story in Luke 10. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus while Martha is the one frantically working, distracted by her many tasks. And then in Luke 10, 41, Jesus says, or it says, the Lord answered her, 
Martha, Martha, you are worried, Marim now, and upset about many things, many things, but one thing is necessary. One thing. She's missing it. So scatterbrained on all these different demands that she's missing Jesus right in front of her. Missing the one thing she ought to be focused on. Doesn't mean none of those other tasks matter or don't have to get done, but she's missing the main point and the opportunity right in front of her. We become anxious and worried when our attention and our focus is directed on too many and too many of the wrong things. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't worry about these things, but it doesn't leave us there. He's not like, just figure it out on your own. He says, don't do that, but, or instead, focus on the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is what should hold your gaze. That is the one thing that should consume your thoughts. Get your eyes up off of your stuff, off of your possessions, off of your worries, the worries of this world, and onto a higher and greater and more stable reality. Get your eyes on me, he's saying. On the kingdom of God, lift up your gaze. Unbelievers, they let material things consume their thoughts, but not you. You know the Heavenly Father. Let that be your obsession, and He will take care of those needs, He says. Be single-minded on God. Look, we can't muster up peace or lack of worry like flipping a switch, or return a switch and automatically, like, all the worry is gone. But we can choose what we think about. And our feelings follow our thinking. Okay, in the same way that it's true that I technically, you know, I can't, I can't flip a switch and be healthy, like physically healthy. True, but I can choose to do things that over time, over many years, over a lifetime, lead to health. Paul, in his, uh, right after the famous do not be anxious passage, where they, they use that Greek word again, he says, do not be anxious about anything in Philippians 4. The, the verse right after that, he says this, verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. He's saying, focus on what is true. What is reality? You have a heavenly Father. Focus on what is true that He knows and He cares. Focus on reality. Interestingly enough, one psychologist, M. Scott Peck, defined mental health as, quote, an ongoing process of dedication to reality at all costs. Think about what is true. The answer isn't to empty our minds and think of nothing, just to, to not worry, but to change the focus of our minds. What thoughts dominate your mind? What do you give your attention to? Paul says, let truth, let reality, let God dominate your thoughts. And Jesus is saying, make his kingdom your ultimate ambition. Your ultimate ambition. The point is not just to not worry, but instead to divert your attention to something greater, to something else. Don't let this consume you. Instead, let this greater reality consume you. Make your life and your thought life about this. 
Because what we give our thoughts to sets the trajectory of who we become. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind. It, it sets a trajectory for if we're becoming more like Christ, more loving, more in peace and, and experiencing joy, or if we are headed in the other direction, more full of worry and anxiety or worrying about the things of this world. So what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? This means focusing your ambition on living out and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life. Helping others know God and grow more into the image of Christ. Making your life about that gospel and the spread of the gospel. This isn't just for ministry leaders or pastors. This is for all believers. You can utilize your giftings, talents, resources for the kingdom of God and its advancement. Whether here in Vermilion or across the world. The reality of, of getting the gospel to these far-reached places is actually probably going to be more on the backs of entrepreneurs than on the backs of missionaries. Because a lot of these countries where the gospel yet is yet to be preached are closed to, you can't just go as a missionary. But for an entrepreneur, man, the door is wide open. Make your life about the gospel and the kingdom of God in your specific assignment in that. And what does it mean to seek his righteous, righteousness? It means your focus is not just on permeating the world with Christ, though it is, but also letting the gospel permeate your own life and your own character. Growing more and more like Christ through abiding in him, focusing on him, fixing your thoughts on him. So let me ask you this as we draw to a close. Worship team, you can come back up. If you are constantly worried about the material things of your life, let me ask this. How focused are you on the kingdom of God and his righteousness? How focused are you on that? What draws your gaze? Doesn't mean your concerns aren't valid or we don't need to take care of these things in our life. We do. But what are you overly concerned about? Jesus closes with this. He says, therefore, verse 34, because of all that, that you have a father who knows your needs, not only knows them, but sees you as infinitely valuable. Because of that, don't worry about tomorrow. Because tomorrow will worry about itself. And he says, each day has enough trouble of its own. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He says, each day will have trouble. Tomorrow there will be trouble. So let's just worry about today. Don't let the worries and troubles of tomorrow rob you of the gifts of today. God is not trying to take something from you. He is trying to offer you a life of infinite joy and contentment and life and peace with him. And the only way we can live a life free of, of worry is by believing that you have a heavenly Father who knows what you need and values you enough to provide for all of those needs. Lift your eyes up off of your stuff and on to God and the reality of his kingdom and provision. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you um, that, that you know what we need God, that you provide for us. You promise to take care of us. We know that is true in our minds, God. We pray that it would permeate our hearts and that our actions would follow, that we would trust you to take care of us, that you see us, you love us, 
You know our needs and you value us. God, help us to believe that and let our focus and our gaze be on you and your kingdom and your righteousness. Pray this in your name. Amen.